Hello, my name is Frank Menino. I'm the curator for the Eastern Historical Society, and welcome to today's show. We're very privileged to have with us today uh, four members from America's Greatest Generation, and that is no cliche. Uh, the things they went through, the things they fought for for this country uh, just cannot be described in anybody else's words except for their own, and we're glad to have this opportunity to share them with you. If I may start, please. Um, Introduce yourselves, a little bit about yourselves, some biographical data, uh, where you were born, when you were born, your family a little bit, parents' occupations. Uh, if you have other siblings who are in the service, uh, that would be nice to know as well. So, uh, Good morning. My name is Jack Hurley. I was born in St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Boston on November 22, 1922. I was brought up on a farm in Stoughton. Uh, on the north end of Ames Long Pond. Uh, my father was a dairy farmer. He had uh, 60 head of milking cattle, a couple of milk roots, and did a lot of trading, trading cows and horses, etc. anything to keep the dollars coming in, which he was very successful at. I lived in Stoughton until I married an Eastern girl and moved to Easton for five years. Bought a house in Stoughton and lived there for 13 years. Then moved back to Easton and lived on Center Street for 40 years. Right, now I'm up on Lincoln Street on my wife's family home. I'm living with my son Tim. And uh, I also have a brother who was in the service, and I have two sisters. Uh, one sister's in West Bridgewater and another sister uh, in Marshfield. And I think that takes care of that. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. I'm Joseph Wilbur. I was born on May 23rd, 1927, in a garden hospital on West Elm Street in Brockton. And <laughs> My uh, father, and we had a farm, and uh, then uh, I had two more brothers come along and a sister. I spent my first 18 years as a farm boy and so forth. And uh, the whole line of everybody was a farmer them days. That's true. So, anything else? Your brothers is, uh, or anybody else in the service from your family? No, no, I'm the only one to get into the family, uh, into the service at all from any one of the family, as a family. I uh, was drafted as soon as I got to be 18. And while I was in the induction center, the Marine come out and said he uh, need two volunteers. And I had no idea what the Marines was, but I was not about going to the Army and get shot up, but go in the Navy and fall off the ship. So I uh, raised my hand, volunteered for the Marine Corps, and the kid behind me, Russell McNeil from Houston, he raised his hand too because he wanted to be with some somebody they knew, and they put your clothes on. We went down South Boston in 41 Plymouth and <laughs> just sworn in the Marine Corps. <laughs> That's great. So, and, the, and on the way down to South Boston, Russ says to me, he says, what is the Marine Corps? I said, you don't know, it's not the Army Navy. <laughs> so, Thank you. You found out. We found out fast. <laughs> oh. yep. And yourself, sir? My name is Arnold Marcus, born July 18, 1924, Haverhill, Massachusetts. We didn't own a farm. My father worked in a shoe factory, and uh, the shoe business went to hell. So we moved to uh, the West End and to Malden, and then we ended up living in Mattapan. I ended up going into the Navy, joining the Navy, at age 17, I had a brother who was drafted in the Army. Strangely enough, he was not called 
as quickly as he would have liked and all his friends had gone in. So he went to the draft board and they tell, told him he was listed as dead. <laughs> and uh, he said, no, he's very much alive. So they drafted him. And uh, that's pretty much it. All right, thank you. John? John Kent, and I was born here in Northeastern. I've lived here all, most of my life uh, up on North Main Street. We were a family of eight children, grandmother living with us. It was uh, an interesting uh, time to grow up. Went to the high school in Oliver Ames and then uh, went to work in the shovel shop for about a year and a half <clears throat> and then uh, decided in 1942 to go into service because most of my friends had gone. I uh, joined the Navy, was called in July of 42. In August of 42, I was on a ship on my way to Iceland. So we had a very short training, but uh, I was put up on the bridge of the ship, uh, taking care of steering the ship and so forth, and got very interested in navigation. The, uh, the whole thing was a very interesting thing. I came back to Easton, taught school here for a couple of years, was principal at the Parkview for a couple of years, and then went on to Bridgewater State College or I should say, should say State University, University. Mm. and uh, then became involved in politics. And it's been a very, very interesting year. All right. Thank you, John. Uh, a little bit about your early days in the service. Some of you have mentioned already. Um, how did you enter the service? Did you sign up in the list where you drafted? Uh, what, why did you choose a particular branch of the service, if you had a choice? I didn't uh, sign up for the service. I didn't enlist, I was drafted. And I waited till the last minute, and they finally caught up with me. And I uh, very quickly, <coughs> this was um, in 1944, and very quickly they cut me into a Navy uniform and, and in boot camp. Mm -hmm. I went to boot camp up in uh, Seneca, New York. I came from there back down to um, Boston and stayed at the uh, Went with hotel and went to school at, um, what was the name of it, John? <laughs> Doesn't come to me at the moment, but anyhow, I went from there down to uh, Mayport, Florida, and I was trained on crash boats, which were the boats that went out and rescued flyers if they crashed on their way back to the port. I never used that um, specifically because I was then transferred to uh, Oakland, California, and that was a uh, jumping off point. And from there, after spending some time there, I went to uh, San Diego, got a board ship, and went board ship went island hopping all the way to Japan. Mm. And the reason that we went island hopping was I was on a small boat. It was only 150 feet long and 35 feet wide, not as big as a football field. and. Uh, we uh, had, had to take shot <laughs> trips because we couldn't keep enough fuel to go beyond these allocated mm. refueling points. And thank God we had a good cook aboard and he'd always get <laughs> supplies every time we'd stop. Whether he needed them or not, he'd find somewhere to keep them. And that gets me to the point that I was, uh, I was in Lady and then I went from there up to uh, Okinawa, and uh, the Battle of Okinawa on um, Easter season of 1945. And that was when the big rush was on, and there were battleships, and there were carriers, and there were destroyers. And everything was in that harbor, and they just kept building that island. Mm -hmm. And uh, our ship had a... Um, a smoke machine on it, on the uh, aft end. And I was in charge of that, and uh, the engineering officer told me if any, anything ever happened with that, just jump overboard, because there'd be a big fire. <laughs> but, and also, he wouldn't let me run it without him being in attendance. Hmm. So it blew up, and I turned around and <laughs> ran over him instead of jumping overboard. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Uh, 
but we provided a lot of cover for the bigger ships that were in there. Prior to that, when we were on the west side of the island, on the east side of the island, we shot down the Japanese kamikaze. And I had some, I had a, a tire from that, and we all split it up, took pieces of it, brought them home. Oh, wow. Yeah. That about takes care of that, Ed, I think. Yes, I was drafted in, came up for draft in 1945, and, and took to the Marine Corps, as I said before, not knowing what it was or anything about it. And a couple of days later, I was in, found out what apple butter was, and on our way to Paris Island, South Carolina, and we did boot camp, four weeks of marching and four weeks of, on the rifle range. I did sharpshooter, 295 out of 300. And uh, we hanged around a couple of days there until we took off. We went to the lunchroom for the mess hall for lunch and they gave us a paper bag with our supper in it. Well, that meant one thing was moving out. Hopped on the plane, and uh, on a train, and headed for Norfolk, Virginia. Next morning, Norfolk, Virginia. And we climbed on the ship. It was 800 feet long, the USS Wakefield. Went down the Atlantic seaboard. Went through the Panama Canal in about the 6th of December and continued on across to, uh, the Pacific Ocean, which, which for 35 days, we had two meals a day on the ship because there were so many of us, <laughs> they couldn't feed us three meals. And uh, got off of the ship, went up the Japanese Strait, which was my worst day of my life, figured that was the end of everything. And uh, we ended up in northern, China, in Tinsen, China, and spent a few months there, and the war was over, and they told us they didn't need us anymore, and we were in what we call the Seventh Service Regiment, 900 of us, which was turned over to the First Marines after the war was over. And uh, then they came along and tried to get us to sign up for two years, and give us a corporal sign us up for four years and give us sergeant, but didn't have too many bites. So out of the 5,000 of us that went over, it was 1,500 of us got on a smaller ship and come back home on the USS Anderson, come into Dago, and from there went across to Great Lakes, and we were discharged from the Navy base at Great Lakes and I uh, guess that takes care of my service. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I uh, wasn't drafted because I really didn't care to uh, crawl in the mud. So I joined the Navy, but I was 17 years old and uh, I wanted to fight for my country. In order for me to uh, get into the Navy, I had to have my parents signed for me, and I drove them crazy. I wouldn't let them sleep, I wouldn't let them eat. And they finally consented, and I joined the Navy in January of 1943. Unfortunately, they forgot to tell me they fight with real bullets. They also didn't tell me that the ships were not cleaned on Friday by a lady who comes in and does <laughs> that kind of work. We were the ones who had to do it. Uh, I ended up uh, going out to the Pacific aboard the, uh, a light cruiser, USS Columbia. Two and a half years we spent in the Pacific, except for the time we came back because we were kamikaze five times and we were in two major sea battles. And uh, don't let anybody tell you war is not hell. So I saw more than my share. I did more than my share. 
at this point, I don't think I would re-enlist, uh, even if they accepted me. But uh, it was an experience. I grew up being in the service. I think it did some kids a lot of good, but it, did, it was bad for a lot of youngsters. 17 years old, the kids are still peeing in their pants. Ended up uh, leaving the service in 1945. Ended up going to uh, Bentley College through the auspices of the United States government. Ended up in the insurance business. Spent 56 years doing that quite well. My son, my youngest son, took over my business, and he also has done quite well. I lived in, uh, we moved to, my wife and I, we were married in, uh, back in, uh, oh, 61 years ago. And uh, we moved to Florida about 12 years ago. But a year and a half ago, when we came to visit our children in Easton, we both became seriously ill. We could not go back to Florida. So we're now living in Easton, in back of Stone Forge is an apartment building owned by Doug King. Story of my life. Thank you. John? Well, as I said a little earlier, I uh, grew up in town and then in 1942, I graduated from the high school in 1940, but in 42 there were very few young men left in town and I decided to uh, leave my job at the shovel shop and uh, joined the Navy. In July of 42, I was, went into the Navy in August of, the second week in August, I was already on anti-submarine duty off the East Coast of the United States. Some of you probably remember what 42 and 43 were like as far as ships and the Germans uh, coming through almost seemingly to win the war because they sunk so many ships off our East Coast and on the way to England. After about by Thanksgiving of 42, I was on anti-submarine duty between St. John's, Newfoundland and uh, Reykjavik, Iceland. And there, one of the strangest things, if I may, uh, Frank, uh, happened to us. Uh, this is a tugboat I was assigned to. When I first got on the tug, I thought the tug was gonna take me to a bigger ship. Well, that was the end of it. It was 130 feet long, and we were going to operate in the ocean. We were assigned to follow the convoy all the way back and forth in case anything happened to the uh, ships or, or there was an attack from the rear. Now, we had 80 ships in, a, in the convoy, and uh, they were uh, rows of uh, 10. And the destroyers were going along the front, and the uh, other anti uh, Submarine ships are on the, either the port or starboard side. And in the middle of the night, we ran into a terrible storm, if I may, Frank, to finish this quickly. Um, mm -hmm. A terrible storm. Now, our decks were probably three or four feet above water. That was the main deck. And so the tugboat really took uh, an interesting uh, beating from a storm. But we had just had radar put on the tug. This was something new. And we also had sonar. Mm -hmm. And the uh, young man uh, who was in the radar said, Kent, I got a contact. And of course, the sea, the sea is going by us at eight to 10 feet high. And I went to see it, and yes, there was something there. And this is at the rear of the whole convoy. And the sonar man called and says, I got a contact at um, 270, 270. And that would be to your left-hand side of the ship. And the radar picked up the same contact several hundred yards away from us. So we knew there was no one back there that belonged to the convoy because that's, that was a hostile territory. And we started to make a run on it. Uh, we fired a couple of star shells to warn everybody else. And, uh, and of course, we had a four, four, 20 millimeters, which are about that big. And, and, and we had depth charges, but we couldn't use them because the deck was, decks were flooded. We made a run on it, and then whoever it was, they fired a, a fairly heavy shell toward us. At that time, the Commodore sent back help for us, and uh, we kept all over the place, and then the thing, the target disappeared. 
So we assumed that we hit it. And the Commodore called over, sent over rather by flashing light, uh, give me a, a report on what happened. So we reported that we saw the contacts and we attacked and tried to, we, we could not identify it, but uh, it disappeared and uh, gave him a fairly long thing, a report on it. So then I, he accepted the report and I sent back another report saying, uh, do you wish any for more information? And he says, no, we'll talk it over at the bar at Reykjavik. And uh, <laughs> that was the end of the report. Well, we assumed that we hit something. And, and then when we got into Reykjavik, the we checked with the British and the Canadians and they were telling us how somebody was shooting at them from the convoy. Uh, one of the uh, uh, Canadian corvettes had uh, broke down, or not broke down, but had gone back to check a target back of the convoys. Of course, you know who the target was. It was us. <laughs> and there we were checking their, this other target and so forth. And I often thought if we had sunk, really sunk, could prove we sunk the ship, it would have been an enemy ship. And if the Canadians had sunk us, they would have reported they sunk an enemy ship. So that was my uh, acquaintance with the Navy and what goes on in, in during wartime. You never know really what you're doing. Mm. We did go to Normandy. We did a lot of work at Normandy, the beach landings and, <coughs> and so on. We helped build the, the big harbors that were there to, uh, to bring the, the other troops in. And then in the storm that hit that, another storm, hit the uh, harbors and destroyed one of those on, on the French mm -hmm. beaches. We had to float everything in. And uh, it, was, it was interesting. But uh, the most crucial thing was that first three months that we were up off Newfoundland, I thought, wow. <laughs> <laughs> 135 foot ship, wow. 60 men. And Jack, I have to talk, we had a galley too, a kitchen. Galley. Two big pots. Supper, lunch, breakfast. <laughs> and they were kept full. And you, and you went in there with a bowl and grabbed what you could get and then get out of there because you couldn't stand still anyway. But it was an interesting wow. experience. Beyond that, I, I did go to the Pacific, and, but we went on a, uh, the USS Fall River, which was uh, 700 feet long, <clears> quite <throat> a comparison to the other one. And I had about uh, seven or 800 men under me on the, on the uh, cruiser. And uh, we operated off the, uh, uh, the East Coast, getting ready for the invasion of uh, the lower islands of Japan, because we were going to land on the East Coast of one of the big islands. And that was an interesting experience in August of 45. And then, of course, the atomic bomb stopped all that. Mm. But uh, it was quite an experience. Well, thank you, John. Uh, John mentioned a few things, kind of leads to the next question. Uh, what was it like leaving home for the service, and how did you adapt to military life, life in the barracks, for instance, or the food, uh, which I've already heard mentioned a few times? Uh, I don't recall that the transition was very difficult for me. Uh, I had worked out on construction jobs and didn't spend much time at home, and so when I went in the service, it was just like another construction job, if you will. Um, as I said before, we had a, a cook who was a real top dog. He uh, uh, kept us in good food all the time. Mm. And we had three meals every day, John, sorry. <laughs> we <laughs> ate well. Uh, one thing I've got to uh, say, though, is the breakfast was always the best meal, and mm. you could depend on that. The other two, you could never tell what, would, what they would be, depending on what the day was. And, you know, he could pr plan for something, but then if you get general quarters or something, he can't cook it, and uh, it's do the best you can with mm. what you've got. But uh, as a result of the breakfast being good there and being in the habit of eating breakfast, <laughs> I have carried that on throughout my life. I eat a good breakfast every day, and the rest of the day falls as it may. Mm. Yeah. How about life in the barracks, sir? Uh, all barracks. of a sudden finding yourself in the, the same room with hundreds of people. Uh, not a problem. Um, <laughs> all I had to do was lay down and I'd fall asleep. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, that was a, good, a good, uh, good way to treat this situation. Hmm. Uh, 
in the uh, in the ship. I was up in the forward part of the ship. Uh, we only had the one deck, uh, the main deck, and then the sleeping quarters and the engine room, etc. <clears throat> and uh, I was lucky. I got a middle bunk. The guy on top, if he sat up, he'd hit his head. And the guy on the bottom, everybody stepped there, <laughs> laid down there, sat down mm -hmm. there, threw stuff in there. That was the worst bunk of the bunch. <laughs> Um, so I always, uh, always made out somehow or other with the accommodations, mm -hmm. at, at, even at the least we might get sometimes. And, yeah, uh, yeah, it was always good. So, and, well, it was quite a change in a hurry. I'd never been on my own bed, <laughs> and I'm. The first night we slept in Washington, D.C. on carts because we missed our train to South Carolina from Boston. And uh, and my nice new haircut, uh, just the day before I left home, got all taken off. <laughs> and lost my clothes in a heck of a hurry and <laughs> in the shower room, which, and th threw a set of clothes at us, whether they fit or not. You put them on and tried them with other people till you got the ones that best fit you. And uh, we had wooden barracks there in uh, South Carolina. And uh, the platoon was, was about 75 <coughs> of us. And that was all right for the first four weeks, then we went to the rifle range, and uh, there we was in Quonset huts, and one night the DI come in stoned, <laughs> about two o'clock in the morning, got us all up, we all lugged a bucket of sand in the, in our Quonset uh, hut, then we lugged a uh, bucket of water in the Quonset hut, and we cleaned and scrubbed the concert hut and cleaned it up and went back to bed about 14 and five o'clock, we're back up out shooting on the rifle range, doing our, our thing there. And, and sometimes we would double timing and we'd lose a guy and we'd just walk over him, keep on going. You didn't stop for nothing. It was kind of a difference. Uh, environment from back home being on the farm and having to get up and feed the cows or, mm. <laughs> or milk or whatever and uh, peddling milk. I, I, of course, in them days, we got up at two o'clock in the morning peddling milk because they didn't have refrigerators in the, most of the mm. houses. Everybody had to have milk for breakfast. But uh, and uh, in the Marine Corps, as it was, you never knew where you was going till 15 minutes before you was <clears> ready <throat> to go. And pack your seat bag, you're leaving, get in that truck. <laughs> yeah. So that's the way it was. And uh, I was only too glad to get home when they, <laughs> when they uh, give us the interview and wanted us to sign up and make us corporal or sergeant or whatever. But going overseas, it was 35 days <coughs> on a ship with two meals a day, and that's what you got. Wow. <laughs> and also overseas in, in uh, April of uh, Easter, we had a lot of ham shipped over to us. Well, we ate ham and pork and more ham and more pork with no refrigeration until everybody was sick. <laughs> and that was another experience you wouldn't forget. So I guess that's about it. Right, thank you, that's quite an experience. The transition for me was not very difficult. I, uh, I was able to do things very gracefully because it was something I had no choice, something I had to contend with. But I managed living in a bunk, you know, 
sleeping in a bunk bed and having people walk all over you, why, I guess you get used to it without uh, uh, being able to sleep as a result of it. As far as food, I managed to eat the food. I had never eaten food. I had never seen anything like that in my life. <laughs> uh, except if you watched, if, if you uh, lived on a pig farm, you saw that kind of food. But I adjusted to it, and uh, I was able to contend with it. As a, as a result, whenever I'm hospitalized, I enjoy the food, and everybody says you're crazy. But uh, I guess you live through it, do the best you can, and uh, we heard a lot of complaints. We heard a complaint about everything. If we had steak twice in one week, we used to hear, well, we get a, oh, we get a steak every damn night, and, uh, uh, you know, it's a... Happens to be a horrible thing, but you learn to live with uh, with the complaints as I do uh, currently. I live with people complaining about everything that they wish to complain about, plus a little bit more. There you go. Wow, John. Well, growing up in a family of eight, going into the service was a little different, but. I received no or very little uh, preparation to get on the ship. In other words, five weeks after I'd gone into the Navy, I was on the Seagull and Tug, which, as I told you earlier, I thought it was going to take us out to our own ship. <laughs> and I found out this was your ship. But on the Tug, I learned very quickly that, uh, well, I could read and write and so forth, and, and a lot of the men on there were not quite as high in the high school and so forth. and so. The skipper assigned me to be in charge of the uh, the wheelhouse where the, all the engine data is and where the ship is going and the charts and the things you need for, for any trip you're going. And to, and to also, because I could write, he uh, made me responsible for notifying the uh, proper authorities on the beach and other ships that we worked with. And uh, I got very interested in communications. And in those days, there was no uh, radio like we have today. It was strictly flashing lights. That, that was the way we sent between the different ships, because that way the Germans could not, or the Japanese, could not uh, pick up, unless they were watching the light. But they certainly didn't get radio waves. Um, it was in the, working with the men. Uh, the skipper would turn a lot of responsibilities over to me after a couple, uh, a few months, and uh, this was very helpful. I, uh, after <clears throat> two years on the tugboat, which included Normandy and uh, Belgium and uh, the west coast uh, of France, all along there, the different anti-submarine duties we had to do, and also the towing or salvage work we did, I found out that. Our responsibility and our interaction with, with the enemy was very different from a soldier because we were in the water and of course we were a little dinky ship and if the ships we worked with, if they got hit, they got hit. They were gone. They were just wham. Sometimes you didn't even see them, uh, even the bodies. They just sank. Mm -hmm. They got hit by a shell or, or we did run into a lot of row bombs. You remember the rocket bombs that used to come from France across to England? And the, uh, the, the missiles, they were all there. Uh, it, was, it was quite an experience. <coughs> the biggest experience uh, I remember very well was going up around Iceland on the way to Russia. And uh, we had sometimes as many as 60 or 70 ships in a convoy. And after we dropped them off at the end of Norway to the Russians and so forth, or Soviets, no, it was Russian then, wasn't it? Um, they were lucky if half of them got through. I mean, we were just absolutely stunned at uh, the damage. And then we had to go, and if any of the ships didn't sink, we had to tow them back to Iceland. Because uh, although we did go to uh, Russia once with a, a cargo that was, the ship wasn't hurt too badly. The engines were gone, but it had a cargo of ammunition. So we did get in there overnight, and Archangel, and back again. In, U in Asia, uh, the trip was ex a different experience because I was on a heavy cruiser and because of my knowledge of the navigation I was put up on the bridge again or we would, that's where I was signed anyway but the admiral um, was uh, the admiral of the fleet was on the uh, 
on the bridge of so much, and he would ask a lot of questions, and finally his aide came and said, would you like to be assigned to, uh, uh, with the Admiral rather than the ship, the Fall River? And I says, no, I enjoy the ship. I've got a lot of men here I like, and no. And he says, well, we're going to have to have a big bomb test at Bikini, and uh, the Admiral would like to know if you'd be interested in going. I says, for how long? He says, oh, 18 months, maybe, maybe at the most two years. <laughs> and I signed up for it. I was single, 20, 25, 26 years old. Mm. And so we spent uh, almost two years at Bikini, which was quite an experience. But the thing that I really was amazed at near the end of Bikini was we were demonstrating the two bombs, but I often felt that we were demonstrating them for the Soviets, not the Japanese, because it was to let the, the, the Russians know that we're going to be around and we have these secret bombs and, and uh, if we need to use them, we will to protect our own rights. I did take very good pictures of... Uh, Sasebo, or Nagasaki rather, and the most amazing thing I ever saw was there was in the middle of Nagasaki, which is a city built in a valley with the mountains around it, um, there was a Catholic church and built of stone. And when we came into the city after the, the uh, surrender, I had the men taking pictures and the Catholic church in the center, everything around it was destroyed. The roof of the church was gone, but the steeple with the stained glass windows was still perfect. Hmm. And, uh, and people say, oh, you're kidding. I said, no, I've got pictures of it. And it was amazing. Of course, I had pictures of the atomic bombs too, but it was quite an experience. And uh, mm -hmm. by that time, I was 25, 26 years old, and it was time to go home. Mm -hmm. So I did go, went to work in Panama Canal as a pilot, you know, taking ships back and forth and uh, mostly Navy ships from one, the Atlantic, the Pacific, or vice versa. And I was stunned that there was a man who lived, worked there called Pigeon, Pigeon Sylvester, and he lived on Lincoln Street. His family did in that second big white house on the right-hand side beyond what used to be Drummy's store. Yeah. You know, there was a big house for the Foley's lived with and so forth. And this guy was... Uh, he came back to Easton once a year to visit. He'd come in with driving in in a great big Piacero with you know, all this. <laughs> and that was quite an experience. But I'll leave it at that. It was, it was different. Wow. Thank you. Uh, getting a little bit more into your wartime experiences, um, a little more specific about where you served or what you saw for combat, perhaps. So what did it feel like seeing you know, the combat, the destruction? What were your emotions like? Uh, Maybe a little difficult, and if you know, understand if you'd rather pass on that, then just please let us know. But uh. I was scared, particularly oh, yeah. in Okinawa. And uh, as I said, we were making smoke for the bigger ships who were bombarding the island, and um, those things were going off over our head 15, 16 inch guns, and uh, you had to be scared. Uh, I had one experience that uh, also made an impact on me, and that was one morning when I came up from down below, out on the deck, and the sun was coming up. It was a beautiful day, oh, out in the Pacific, and you know, blue water and blue sky and the sun. And out of that sun came a bunch of kamikazes, and they just spread out all over the place. And I was scared. Mm. Mm. But they didn't get us, thank God. Wow. So we. Uh, also, before Okinawa, the Battle of Okinawa, we did what they call picket duty, and we went out all the uh, different points off of Okinawa, and we were the forward warning ships to, to alert the, those on the island, uh, those, those around the island, uh, that the kamikazes were coming. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, when we see them, and uh, immediately thereafter, the Fighters would come out and go get them. Mm. Um, it was like like a movie almost because it was, you know, unreal to see what mm. happened. But interesting. Wow. Yeah, and scary. Mm. Yeah. And then one other uh, 
point of interest was that after Okinawa, we were sent on R&R down to uh, Leyte, and we stayed there for a couple of months till after the peace thing was signed in August, I guess it was, but uh, August, September. But we went to Japan in uh, September 11th of 1945, right? Mm. And uh, we stayed there from September to somewhere around the first of the year. And I became friendly with a fellow who went to American University. And uh, it was scary being at, in Tokyo. Let me say that, we used to get mm. duty, uh, get leave, but we'd never, uh, never go out alone. Yeah. Always, always two or more. Mm. And uh, I did get friendly with this guy and he was all right. But there were two different societies there and one of them was very peaceful and the other was the war, war group. Mm. So that was a little bit of the experience that I had there with that. Mm. Mm. <coughs> well, I think the scariest day was going up the Japanese Strait with all these little boats on the side of us fishing for mines. We had no idea we were ever going to go any further. Nobody talked to anyone or anything. It was just wondering what the next move was. But uh, after we got up into China, northern China, Tinsen, China, I uh, became a truck driver. And uh, sometimes I had to take a Japanese uh, that we had uh, the prisoners of war, had, had them working for us, and sometimes you had to take truckloads here or there back to their barracks and so forth. It was a little bit scary, wondering if he was going to have your head left mm. <laughs> or, or whatever. You had 50 guys, Japs, behind you in the back of the truck, and the, nothing but canvas cab on the trucks. But uh, the war was. was virtually over, so we had clean up, and I was one of five that ended up being all-vehicle driver. Well, they took me out on a road test, and I shifted this truck through all his gears, and the MT side, he says, downshift. I downshifted very nicely. He says, downshift. I shifted down another gear without raking any gears. And the next day I found I was an all-vehicle driver, which meant bulldozers, <laughs> cranes, or most anything they had that needed to be moved, Wilbur will take it. <laughs> so I learned real fast how to drive <laughs> equipment. I'd never driven back on the farm. Wow. But uh, the only thing I refused to drive was a tank one day. and Couldn't see anything, couldn't see my buddies or anyone. I says another guy. I says you take this thing. <laughs> I'll take a crane <laughs> with a boom. I don't care. But uh, that was it. And of course, uh, when uh, they want to sign over more time and everything, which none of us in there did. <clears throat> and I guess that kind of takes care of it. Thank you. You're welcome. Surprisingly enough, <clears throat> I was not frightened. I can't explain that, but it was something that uh, was a job I had to fulfill. And my job was kind of, should have been scary because I was a water tender. We watched the, uh, the, the uh, pumps, the turbines pump the water into the shaft so that the ships could run. And we were dealing with uh, 600 pounds per square inch pressure, 600 uh, degrees superheated steam. So that meant if if the uh, if we were hit, we might live two seconds or mm. thereabouts. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we were into we were involved in two major sea battles, but they were at night and there was nothing we could see. Just you heard the guns going off and the clicking of the Japanese guns against the ship. We were not hit by the 
Japanese guns, but uh, we were fortunate. I also, in the course of my time, had seen five kamikazes, and I saw torpedoes that had crashed into some of our task force. And uh, as a result, sank the ships that, the, that they hit, that the torpedoes hit. So it was kind of a uh, difficult proposition for somebody my age. I hadn't grown up yet. And we ended up uh, in 1945, after, uh, Naga after Nagasaki and the atomic bomb, which I was in favor of because we saved many thousands of U.S. Uh, lives. Because everybody's not in agreement with, with me. That was my opinion. We went back to the States and I served some time in the Fargo building. I was doing a stenography for three, I re-enlisted for three months. I had had some typing experience when I was in high school and I re-enlisted so that I could spend some time as a typist at the Fargo building. Then I was discharged and ended up going to college. And uh, here I am, still alive. By the way, this, the cane is used for pushing buttons on elevators and automatic doors. Thank you. John? Gee, mine's automatically wood. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's difficult to uh, explain your feelings. Uh, there was sometimes uh, I was scared. There other times I was so damn busy that uh, you know, I didn't have time to think about it. I was concerned more about the men who were working with me, and uh, this made a big difference. But I think the the only time I really was uh, knowing that I was in the war was uh, right off Normandy when the, a twin-engine bomber came in very low over the water, and we were towing something, and uh, it started, was firing periodically, uh, but going toward the ships that were the, the battleships and cruisers that were shelling the beaches, and uh, the men above me, the two twenty millimeters, uh, they started firing at us. Says, "Cut it out!" And afterwards, they came to me and says, well, "Kent, why did you tell us to cut it out?" He says, "Because I didn't want him to see us. We're towing this thing behind us, and he went on and got shot down anyway when he got to the cruisers and the battleships." Our big job was to build this harbor afterwards, and so about, oh, 15 or 20 tugs, the same size as ours, we were towing these great big concrete blocks from England to France so that they could build the breakwaters. And, of course, the blocks were floated, and they had 40 millimeters, I think, on top and so forth. They had a small crew in them. But our job was to tow them in, and uh, the first half a day or the early part of the day, the e-boats hit us and they went after the concrete blocks. <laughs> of course, <laughs> concrete blocks are concrete blocks. You can't sink them unless you, they, I mean, they, they don't, a torpedo didn't bother them, it shook them a lot. And then all of a sudden they must have reevaluated what they were doing. They decided if we sink the tug, the blocks aren't going to go or whatever they're towing. And they started after us and, and those things were just so I guess they carry a fairly large torpedo. I'm not that familiar with them, but uh, the e-boats. And when they let them go, the tugs were hit. They disappeared mm -hmm. practically. Uh, so you knew what was happening, but you knew that you wouldn't see most of those guys again. Going through Dover, uh, towing things back and forth, um, the Germans would shell us sometimes. And of course, when the V-bombs were going, the row-bombs, as we call them, on their way to England or wherever they were going to Dover or something. They were coming over very low, and uh, like a motorboat or uh, a thing flying about. I guess they went about 400 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, Spitfires would be chasing them sometimes, and that was kind of dangerous. And there was one case of a, a Dutch tug was working with us, and they, when the Germans took over the Netherlands, the crew threw the German who came aboard the tug, threw them overboard and, and took off for England. 
and uh, they worked with the British Navy, and they were in a group of us, uh, several tugs going through by Dover when the, um, Ger the German shells, they started shelling us, and then there were e-boats. And as they went by, one of the boys, which you can pick up on the radar fairly well, there was an e-boat very close to it, so there was confusion in the rough water. And the e-boat took off after that tug and hit it. And the, the irony is, here with the, the Dutch, nobody survived it. Even the pilot of the British pilot didn't survive that. But the irony was, it made us all feel very sad, was the way these guys had got rid of the Germans in three or four, two years before, and then came to England to help to fight the war, and then get hit right off Dover. Mm -hmm. uh, it, was a, it was an interesting experience along the mm -hmm. Normandy coast and Cherbourg and all those places. But it was a busy one, very busy. Uh, switch gears a little bit. What was your opportunities, I guess, or what was it like when you actually had a chance for some R&R? &R How did you re stay in touch with your comrades or letters from home even? Hmm. Uh, we had pretty good mail services, I recall, uh, both coming and going. And the check went to mother every month from out of our, our pay. Um, What was the want to repeat that for oh, what did you do for R and R for instance? Oh, yeah. How I'm did sorry, you keep yeah. in contact with, with yeah. people back home? Yeah, we were uh, R and R after an hour down in Lady Gulf and um, they uh, they had some uh, yard sales, if you will, out there and we used to be able to go ashore and, and pick up stuff there. Mm. And I did get some things, brought them home and uh, little knick knack type things that uh, the girls liked. Uh, then after the treaty was signed, we went into uh, Tokyo Bay uh, and we were stationed at the Yokohama Naval Base. <coughs> we went into Tokyo Bay and, uh, and uh, had leave in Tokyo. And uh, so we, we had good communications all the time. You know, not, not like communications are the day, but, uh, you know, our mail got out and our mail got back to us. Mm. So it was good. Uh, aside from that, I don't know of any, any R&R &R we got. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it was all right being in Tokyo Bay because the war was over. Mm. Mm. So that was about it for... Easy times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the mail service was fairly good, and we got a lot of cookies sent over and <laughs> crumbs and whatever, and everybody would sit down in the hut, and we'd have cookies till they were all gone when somebody <laughs> shipped some cookies, we'd share them and like and so forth. And, uh, there was a church in Tencent, China there, and once in a while we get to go to the church on Sunday morning. And uh, Tencent itself, as a city, had uh, some very large stores, uh, four or five floors high, uh, like the malls uh, that we have here in the States. But it was only once or twice we went roaming around like that. And uh, of course, uh, myself, I was hauling everything, trucking for a while. And then uh, I got the water run, so all I had to do was pedal water all day long <laughs> to the mess halls and, and officers' quarters and the bakery and so forth. And then. I volunteered for mess duty because it was warmer in the mess hall than it was out in the open yeah. truck. <laughs> so I did that for a month. And then uh, I got to be record driver, which was 24 on, 24 off, mm. or whenever they needed me. Yeah. And for the rest of the time I was there. So. But, uh, we, uh, it was a group of us. We didn't drink, we didn't smoke. and mm. So, um, 
What war were you in? <laughs> I'll tell you, I tried smoking three times, but burned my eyes so bad on the second puff. That, and there was several of us that would say we just could not hack them, even though it was only three cents a pack for cigarettes. But uh, we had a few toys we played with in the... We uh, took a gas tank off an airplane, cut the top of it, put two of them together and dropped it in the river with a three, horse and a half or, or so um, engine on it. We ran up and down the Chinese River with it. And that wasn't good enough. They sent me down to the warehouse with a requisition to get a five horse Johnson Seahorse. <laughs> so we lowered the the boat down into the water. I was up on the shore. <laughs> and I, because uh, I lowered it down my wrecker. And uh, at first they pulled the rope. That was the end of the boat. They all scrambled. <laughs> Five horse was too much for that little boat we built. And they got over. I pulled them all up to shore. And we did, I built an automobile while I was over out of a Jeep that had no engine in it. So I put a Ford engine in it, went in the machine <laughs> shop and got a clutch machine to fit the flywheel. So we played with that for a little while. So we, we had our own entertainment when yeah. we had time <laughs> for relaxation. And because it, Power was always going off over there, so I found a, a generator in the salvage pile and got that going. So we had lights in our <laughs> corner, about 13, 12 or 13 of us there. And we had the dispatcher center out in the other end of the, so he had lights too most of the time. Telephones, we had to crank up telephone. They, and uh, I never ever did have to use the telephone while I was there. I guess that's it. My R&R &R was very interesting. I learned how to drink when I was in the service. <laughs> so as a result, every time I went on leave, I got drunk. And uh, I didn't think that I would come back from the service. I honestly thought I would be killed. Mm -hmm. So it didn't matter what I did. And uh, I did some crazy things. Fortunately, that... World War II was a great war for civilians taking care of service people. Everybody loved us. That, that doesn't exist today. The Vietnam War, the Korean War, the current wars, the civilians don't care any more about the servicemen than, uh, than they uh, would care about uh, uh, a lesser evil. So it was a very interesting exciting time for me because when you're drunk you don't care it's just, you don't know anything you don't know what's going on and uh, you really don't give a damn as a result i would end up sometimes waking up in the middle of the night in somebody's home because i had passed out on the street and some civilian was kind <laughs> enough to take me into his home mm. uh, it was interesting i think back it was, it was very interesting because people were so concerned. So I made a lot of good friends. When we got back to the States, I was in Pearl Harbor. We had a uh, beer drinking contest and I was the winner. <laughs> my, wife will, my wife will be BS with me. She says, why would you see fit to tell these stories? I drank 18 cans of beer in an afternoon. <laughs> so I was a uh, major hero. Uh, I don't know if I could do 18 cans today, but <laughs> I wouldn't even make the attempt. So R&R was important. The, uh, a lot of the uh, service people didn't have a chance to shed their problems. And I think that that's a, uh, as a matter of fact, I was talking with a, uh, with a, uh, VA doctor just about a week ago, he said every single veteran who comes back from war area 
has PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm -hmm. which is very interesting because the, the, the VA did not recognize PTSD. Didn't know what it was. You ask him what it was, and we don't know what, what it is. I said, well, do I have it? No, you don't have it, but we don't know what it is, mm -hmm. which is very typical with, with the, the Veterans Administration. Mm -hmm. I might so, be able to ask you, you talked about how well the civilians treated the servicemen. Yes. Was there anything in particular that stands out to your mind about that? Uh, something we, particular? We, we never paid for a drink. We never paid for a meal. We never paid for a thing. You mm. couldn't. It was impossible in those days to pay for anything. There was always civilians around who would grab the checks mm. willingly. Yep. Very unusual when you make the comparison as to what's happening today. The civilians were just wonderful people and uh, mm. thrilled to, uh, to take care of the service people. An interesting question. Wow. Thank you. John? Well, for recreation, uh, there were two very different things, being on the Seago and Tug and then on the heavy cruiser. So in the Seago and Tug, we operated in around England and Iceland and all those places. But our job was to salvage or help the ships that were in, had, for some reason or other, needed help. And so we took them to the nearest port. And some of those ports were small. And uh, gosh, we came in, Americans, you know, the people would be coming running down to see us. And especially in England, they, they wanted to talk to Englishmen. And uh, there weren't many Englishmen around, so there were plenty of English girls. And we enjoyed uh, going in at most seaports if we had mm -hmm. to. Uh, it was great. They were very good. Uh, London was absolutely uh, fantastic. We enjoyed that. Other, other times we get into trouble or problems and so forth. If I have time, uh, I'll tell a very quick one uh, on uh, Calais. We went into Calais. We were the first Americans in there because they had something to do with the tidal gates and we were assigned to get in there. The Germans were still in the, in the barracks or what do they call those underground things? I've forgotten now. Uh, where they lived uh, underground. And so after we mm -hmm. got some of the things done, we, we were tied up to a pier there. We were the only ship in there. And uh, a couple of guys came and said, you know, we're going to go up and see if we can get any souvenirs. And uh, they went up to get the souvenirs. And about three or four hours later, a Canadian officer came down. And he says, you're Americans, aren't you? Because we were dressed in dungarees and things. We never wore our uniforms. and. Uh, you know, but we did fly the American flag. And, uh, yeah, well, what's the story? And he says, well, I've got some men up there, the German prisoners, that we caught in one of the barracks, and they claim they're Americans, and they speak English very well. Do you, do you have are all your men accounted for? And I thought, oh, God, i got six of them. I don't know where they are. <laughs> and, uh, and I walked up the end of the dock with them, and there were the six guys, and... Um, you know, and I identified them and told them to go back, and I felt like strangling them right there. And they, they were found in a German barracks, and they had all this equipment. They had rifles and shotguns, not shotguns, what do you call them? Uh, different equipment. Uh, they were going to bring back to the ship as souvenirs. And <laughs> that was the funniest thing I ever run into. But normally, we were in a small fishing port sometimes where we had to, because we couldn't stay out too long. We didn't have that much uh, fuel. On the cruiser, uh, having an admiral on board didn't hurt. You know, going to a big city or something, and there was always a big uh, shakedown after the atomic testing, and they'd have some kind of a party or something like that for it for the admiral, and we we would be there to help the admiral become happy, of course. But um, with the English and the and the French. I was very surprised at how friendly they were. The French were hostile, not hostile, but they were, they were kind of concerned, especially the uh, civilians, just what they should say in front of us or be with us. But the, the English were wide open. And the Irish, of course, once they found out <laughs> I was Irish. And could speak a little Irish anyway, say hello. But uh, it was quite an experience. Iceland. Um, they were in a new situation. They had become a nation on their own because the, the, uh, they, they had uh, set up their own government and everything because Denmark was then under the German control. So that, that uh, was a good situation there. And there again, we were in 
spent as much time in the small villages, seaports, as we did at the Navy bases. But it was quite an experience. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up for today. I'd like to thank all of our guests for taking time to share their experiences with us today. Uh, it's very important that these experiences are remembered and that we show uh, proper recognition for the things they've accomplished, for what they've done for our country, and we extend our sincere gratitude to each of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh,